welcome to a special episode of The Voice of Insurance, produced in association with Whitespace. Building a fully digital marketplace for insurance in London has been something that has been a tantalising long-term goal for all of my 30-year career. Only too often, this has proved a mirage that has turned to sand as the market got close. Dare I say it, but this time things seem very different. Now, robust core standards are providing foundations of solid rock upon which the market can build with greater confidence. Technology is also more advanced and more readily available at a much more reasonable cost. Today, even the smallest player can jump ahead without busting the bank. Indeed, the biggest obstacle to accelerated change is now cultural. And that is where the biggest transformation has taken place, in the minds of market leaders. Now, instead of the technologists trying to drag the market kicking and screaming towards modernization, change is starting to be demanded of the technologists from practitioners themselves. The stars are finally coming into alignment. That's why I'm delighted I could talk to three highly experienced insurance technology experts about this. Kirsten Duffield is CEO of Insurance Software Business Morning Data and is an advisor to the London Market Data Council. Helen Stanway also advises the Data Council and is a strategic advisor at R10 Consulting, as well as being a counsel to numerous other tech bodies. Finally, Marcus Broom is Chief Platform Officer at insurance trading platform Whitespace. All have experience providing technological solutions to the insurance market going back to the early to mid-1990s. These people have been at the heart of London's digital journey for the last 25 to 30 years. They are technologists steeped with deep insurance understanding and their cumulative knowledge of every step and misstep that the market has taken in that period is second to none. Luckily for you and me, they are also a trio of concise and passionate communicators who know how to speak to lay people. So what follows is a really useful run-through of the current market modernization programs that dispels a lot of myths and clears up a lot of misunderstanding we might have about what exactly the latest reforms are and the benefits they might bring to the market. I found it really inspiring and helpful, and I'm sure you will too. After this encounter, I feel much more confident that the first fully digital fruits of the last 30 years' labours may finally be within our grasp, particularly if these three have anything to do with it. Enjoy the podcast. Marcus, Ellen, and Kirsten, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you. Lovely to be here. We're here to talk about a data-first market, something that we've been building. It seems to be we've been building it for a long part of my career. It seems to be we're getting closer. Before we get going, what is a data-first market and what would it mean for the London market if we had one? Marcus? I think a data-first market is one in which data rather than documents form the fundamental insurance contract. And from that flows a much more efficient process. It takes out the rekeying that still goes on in the market, and it allows automation of the downstream process. So there's no documents. Everything starts as data, and it goes through everything as data, and it never really changes. Well, yes, in a sense, you have to have all of the pieces of the jigsaw to make that happen. You have to have standards so that we understand what something is for one person means the same thing at the other end. And then you've also got the fact that you can produce documents as a byproduct. We're not suggesting that the document is not sent to, say, for the insured for their records. But the document as a starter is not going to allow the return on investment of the collection of that data if you're going to find it difficult to extract it. So we're really looking at extraction of data as the secondary part. And the first part would be, let's go data first, let's be digital first, and the document becomes a byproduct. So we're talking about a transition. We're talking about 
turning things into data that aren't necessarily data that are documents. One presumes that they're in some form of a document. But the real goal is to have started with data before we begin. And how close are we to getting a data-first model going for those that are able to deal with it? There's an interesting stat in the market that I've never had validated, but is banded around, so it must be true, um, <laughs> is that 70% of this market works on documents. So for those that really want to embrace using data for different purposes, analytics, efficiency, that is quite a big change. And I find it quite interesting that documents are so flexible and that's why they've persisted. But actually, that's a whole bunch of what they call unstructured data because you can't actually do anything with it once it's in the document. You then have to deploy potentially sticking plaster type technologies to then extract it in order to be able to use it. So it is a fundamental change to flip that model to create structured and meaningful data up front for it to then flow. Now, I know Marcus mentioned rekeying. Some people may like rekeying, but it's not exactly efficient. No, I don't think anyone likes rekeying. <laughs> Move away from that. And Whitespace is a classic example of how they've taken the unstructured document and the early philosophy was about taking that document, digitizing it, and then trying to look at how that could be tagged into structured items so that you can then extract that data into some kind of PaaS system or an external system. And I think that's been very successful, but present company obviously included here. There is also the problem that that still persists the document first. So the ideal situation is to move that one step further along the chain and say, well, let's create that document from data going in, which is why having APIs and being able to use standards become so strong. So me as an observer sitting outside, I saw the announcement about the core data record from the Data Council. Is that the sort of holy grail? Is that the beginning? Is it no, the not the holy grail. Is it the absolute minimum standard? It should be a byproduct. You should almost not blink at it. It should be something that just falls out the side of your normal processes. That's not the thing. And it's not, a, it's not a full underwriting file. So we're not looking at an entire set of all data that is required, but we're looking at the stuff that would enable the four use cases, the opening of the gateway, methanols, tax regs, etc., to be sped up, to reduce the rekeying by the back office in DXC. So all of this elements being smoothed out will then hopefully cut costs in the market and encourage us to get on the pathway to a more digital environment. It actually starts at the end, the core data record, because it starts once the risk placing journey has completed. Yeah. And it's the data for the downstream processing, as, as Kirsten has said. So it's that accounting settlement. How do we get that machine, once that risk has been placed, flow through much more efficiently and much more cost effective? So how important is it in the context of a genuinely data-first market? It's just a small thing. It is a small thing and it's quite a big thing because it's for the first time where we have established a set of common standards that everybody can understand in the same language it's all applied to accord standards, which everybody should be connected to. And it means we can transfer data much more easily between organisations. So yes, it is major because we're then talking the same language, but it isn't at the front end. It's not at that place. Yes, why is that? Why have we collectively as a market decided to do this first when, of course, everyone knows that the placing process, you know, do you start with a few quotes or rough indications, quotes, firm quotes, firm orders, placing syndication, and then you get to the well, Because the world's chaotic. The outside world, the, the brokers wake up in the morning and decide that they're going to spin a new product. They're there to deliver what the client wants. And the client is the outside world 
that has a unique requirement for their particular insurance. So the broker is satisfying the client's needs to tailor what they can offer. And therefore, there is less structure. Whereas when we're talking about moving money, or we're talking about who should pay and how to identify them, take the banking industry, you know, moving money from A to B, that is relatively structured. So starting somewhere where we agree those common languages for the common players and the common actions, where things are predictable, starts to prove that we can now move it further upstream. We will already know what an inception date is. We know what an expiry date is. We know that we're going to put it in a particular format. Those can then start to move their way further upstream in amongst the chaos. There is hunger for this now. And I think that the holy grail, if you like, is a full data record, and we can build on the core data record. Mm. So it's a critical step, but moving to that full data record. And we often talk to our customers about what the digital ambition is. And a while back, that conversation wouldn't have necessarily been that long. But now, it's very clear that every single organization in the market has a digital ambition, and they are looking to transact with full data after the core data. I think it also goes a little bit to the subscription model that we have. Actually, to go back, somebody explained to me that the core data record was the non-political data of a transaction. So if we start there, then we can gain that consensus of agreement before kind of maybe getting into the gnarlier, more competitive side of the data. We can establish common standards where we're all doing structured work in the same way as a subscription risk and remain competitive. So you welcome this. It is a core building block, but recognise it's very hard to build it from the other end, but we're going to build it out from this lowest common denominator. Well, effectively. you've got standards we've been used to all the time. We do it second nature. I mean, yeah. we are quite happy to refer to GBP, US dollars as USD, etc. There's no sort of real argument about that. So it's really only making that superset of standards of common language a commonplace in what we are doing, the non-competitive, as Helene said. Whereas we want to retain that competitive edge where you are trying to create a product structure, the rates, the various limits, et cetera, that's the nuance the broker can bring to the party as well as the customer service. So maybe trying to relieve them of some of the administrative overheads and allowing them to choose, simple as choosing more drop-down lists. But that's where the technologists their moment in time is now coming around. Because I think in the late 80s, there was a statistic that over 75% of all motor risks in the UK on, held on a database had the colour of the vehicle as beige. Why? Because it was the first colour with the letter of the alphabet. So users will always find a workaround or a convenience. Now this is where the technologists can come to the party and really stamp their competitive edge on being able to help their user through things which are mundane. And yet they are actually very easy to get right. How we go around building that complexity at the front end? Because, of course, you ask two brokers, how do they broker business and two underwriters? And you'll end up with permutations, combinations of, of at least four or eight ways of doing something. And they all do it slightly differently. They'll ask slightly different questions, slightly nuanced. How would you build the technology to help cope with that ultimately on the underwriting end of things? What do you do? Do you just have so many drop downs and so many options and then or if other right in here. I'm not sure whether it's if other. I mean, other's the technologist nightmare. It's a bit like miscellaneous for an accountant or these various things that we try to stamp out so that we can get structure. But I think there's a pragmatism about it. There's an 80-20 rule. There are items of data which are not really up for massive debate. And then there are items of data where they should remain an element of flexibility. 
So I know that in the DARE product within the LMA, their project, they're looking at standardizing clauses. This is partly because they've identified they had 24 clauses that had like one word difference. So when we look at the reality of it, rather than the Chinese whispers, actually, there's probably quite a bit we could standardize without taking away the nuance of the broker. And what they're adding is the personal contacts, the customer service, the claims handling, speed, all those kinds of things. There's a moment there as well. Your clause example is really interesting because, of course, a clause as data, you can know whether it is the same. The moment that it's been put into a document, someone needs to read it to be sure that it's the same. Yeah. So it, it gives you an element of control that doesn't exist otherwise. It's certainly, yes, as a broker, there are a hundred different versions of the claims corporation and claims control clauses, for example, and, there, and most of them have been doctored by an underwriter with a scratch and a little initial... And it was probably not much point to any of it, and particularly some of them would even refer to notification by cable and things that people didn't even know. How, how do you send a cable? I have no idea. But maybe we're getting a bit far ahead of ourselves. We've had some good announcements on Blueprint 2. For me, looking outside, it's good to know that the funding is there. How important to all of you is it to know that the funding has been agreed by the market? Does that give you a lot of confidence that we're going to get to this end goal? I would say it's more nuanced than that. So whilst there is central funding to build standards, actually every organisation needs to go through a change journey and they will have to determine the business case and the funding in order to do that. So that is an individual organisation's decision. In order to participate in the market, there is no, no action. Everybody's going to have to do one or two or three things, depending on what type of organisation you are. If you are a carrier it is likely at this point that the minimum you will have to do is transition from the underwriter signing message and the syndicate claims message or USMSCM into the new standard, which is the EBOT and the ECOT. And no, I can't remember what those stand for. Electronic back office. Yeah. <laughs> and then from a broker. Is it electronic back ele office transaction? Or and is it, or, the electronic or? claims office transaction. transaction. Yeah. <laughs> so these are electronic messages that are universally readable. Indeed. It's more structured, taking the LPAN and turning it into something which can be... The LPAN is the London Premium London Advice Premium Note, advice if note. I remember correctly. <laughs> Good grief, let's take us back a bit. Good list of acronyms. But if you're a broker, you actually have to do quite a bit more because you're going to have to create areas within your system to collect more data and you are likely to have to then transact more data through APIs and such like. So there is more the central transformation stuff's required central funded, But of course, your own interaction with that if we, we're sort of making the telephone exchange, but you still have to go and buy your own phone and, and do your own sort of phone system around your own office, right? Yes, Absolutely. and I think that, again, comes back, obviously, as a technologist myself, you know, I come from an acute sort of feeling of what this really means. Traditionally, it's been a market that has decided on something should or shouldn't happen or a direction or an initiative. And from that, the various participants, the carriers and the brokers will feed back to their technologists an interpretation of what they think is required. They become their technologist's clients and the client said, this is the spec, this is what we would like. And the technologists then code to a spec and invariably it isn't necessarily a collective or consistent solution across the market. And we all have different interpretations of how that might work. Now I think it's quite different. Lloyd's have indeed stood up a carrier sort of lead a broker lead and a technologist lead. And I think that is an element which is going to herald a different viewpoint of the technologist's role. But the technologists have got to also shift. They've got to now think, I'm doing this for the market as a whole, for all my clients, not 
as each client turns up and devises a spec. So they've got to be one step ahead, perhaps even changing their entire business models to be able to code preemptively for things that the clients haven't yet understood or realized in a technology world is how to do it. Why would a broker know how an e-bot or an e-cot or an API would work? It's not their domain. It's not their expertise. And for the broker, I think ultimately, and for the underwriter as well, this all translates into greater efficiency and greater productivity. It's about being able to do more quicker at lower cost. Yeah. So everything that we're talking about is driving in that direction. And if we can get more of the market doing that in the same way, then it all starts to feed off each other rather than pursuing independent paths. One of the key points of the core data record is reg reporting. And actually, we as a market need to provide that data in order to benefit from the licensing of the regulators around the world. So we're trying to collect that in a consistent way and in a more efficient way, but that data will be required in order to trade. And the overseas regulators are unlikely to go backwards in their thinking as more countries become more sophisticated and follow various regulatory examples set by the more sophisticated financial centres of the world. We're going to find that regulatory requirement is going to be stepped up, not go backwards. Absolutely. It's interesting that point, Marcus. The biggest problem is often that we as a market have to move at the speed of the slowest adopters and that some of those laggards can get in our way. Mm -hmm. I would propose that what you were saying that the way to get around that is to create an absolute economic incentive to do it the better, faster, newer way, which will require some investment to start with. Are we going to be able to create that economic advantage to give the laggards the absolute incentive to say, well, I could carry on doing it this old way, but it's getting more and more expensive. And I can see that my competitors are leaping ahead and a 10 broker firm seems to have double the turnover of me and they're stealing my customers because they seem to be able to service them quicker. And suddenly we have that competitive incentive to really crack on and become more efficient. There's definitely that incentive. And it was also interesting just in relation to something that Helene, you said earlier, the competitive element of data. There was a while, I think, where organizations were looking at data as their asset. Yes. We know about the data. It's our data. And it's moved to the value of data being in how efficiently you can share it with your partners, you know, in safety and security. But the market has moved from wanting to collect data to wanting to use data for competitive advantage. It's in the use rather than just the ownership. Because there's that realization, of course, I have only got 4% market share. So how valuable is my data when the other 96 is out there? Plus, there's also third-party data that is increasing all the time that I could need to ingest as well. And if I can share the data in the right way and quickly, then I can deliver a better service to my customer. It goes right the way through to the customer. I think that's been really shown in previous years from other disruptive technologies where you have had things like Apple Pay and PayPal. They weren't interested in the transaction costs. They were interested in the data that went with it. That was infinitely more valuable to them about where you shopped, and how you shopped than it was the actual transaction fee. So when we're talking about the benefits financially, the core data record is hoped to drive at both ends. Because if the broker can see the advantage of allowing things to be collected closer to source, so more information that an insured would fill out in a very easy way. Traditionally, in our motor insurance, we had to, only three, four years ago, you would have to put in the make, the model, and the year. Now you just put in the registration plate and APIs are bringing back your data. So you're still getting that same piece of data, but it's clean and it's at the source. 
So if they're able to supply more at that end, that then smooths it more accurately and doesn't need to be cleaned. And at the other end, the cost savings for the carrier for brokers that are able to trade digitally in the back office means that there could be, and hopefully, a pincer action to make a reduction in cost right across the market. I think that's a key point, isn't it? Because one of the main reasons for, for doing Blueprint 2 is to get that right first-time data. And I know that's a cliche, but actually by setting the standards, by building the right technology, the right behaviours and the right process, actually will stop this nonsense of query loops, which is such a waste of time and energy when we should be, to Marcus's point, putting that energy back into the client service or building your, your book of business and, and growth, not on this transaction loop of errors and missing data. What do you think your best estimate is on this relative cost saving? Probably it's better to say, not just to measure it in money, the CFO is quite good at measuring these things in money, and it's quite a useful way of getting people's attention. But obviously, it's not just that, it's about doing things better and faster and be able to win more business and do more business and do it better. And be a better underwriter while you're at it. What is the prize in terms of the potential cost saving? You've got a new generation as well. Every time the people who are setting these standards are, shall I put it, of an age, purely down to their experience that they may have in the market. I mean, that age range is quite broad. But now you've got your teenagers of today coming up and buying insurance. We have a whole move into short insurance for motor policies. My own children, for example, will have insurance on each other's cars where they just buy by the hour. Now, I'm not sure the London market is really in a position to handle that kind of insurance, but there are other insurtechs and other markets that are doing that very well. Now, if that becomes the norm, we need to be on a trajectory that allows for that kind of technology and that kind of granularity of data to be easier in terms of its flow through what's going on. Now, that doesn't change or doesn't impact if you're the broker handling Coca-Cola's biggest insurance needs of the year, but we shouldn't be coding all of these technology advances based on the most complex of a reinsurance or most complex insurance risk that's known to man. That point is well made. And we're certainly seeing some business now being transacted in the London market that would previously have been too expensive in the traditional way. So business can be automated. We're seeing sort of algorithmic bind and we're starting to see automated routing by brokers as well. And what about an absolute percentage say on the expense ratio, do you think, you know, talk to some brokers like, you know, progressive broker like David Howden, he's planning for a world in which brokerage is going to tend to zero. Do you think that's possible? It's a zero friction market. Obviously, we've got the fixed costs and the maintenance for the apparatus. But once you've done that, there is no other cost. I think in terms of overall expenses, I'm not going to be challenged on that number. But I think there are specific examples where people can point to costs being all but eliminated in terms of business flowing through. When do you think we'll be able to see some of the first data-first transactions that are fully data all the way from the beginning to the end, and one that will make you very happy, Kirsten? Well, uh, thank you very much for leading <laughs> to that one. I think we already do see that, but we see it in the world of the technologists and their partnerships and their collaboration. There is an element of culture change, which is still there. So, for example, in my world from our core PaaS system, Novus, we are digitally able to communicate with Whitespace. We're able to send a not gone via a document route using their APIs. We can send that not just the core data record, but also the clauses so that what you are starting with in Whitespace is effectively a blank, quote unquote, page and you are sending JSON data straight in and it will construct the contract from that. This is all technologically viable now. 
getting the broker culturally to accept that is probably the next biggest change. So we can prove it, we can show it, we have demonstrated it. It's now getting the culture. And I think that brings us on to the idea of the different personalities. You asked earlier on about why we've started with the back office. Well, the back office, you tend to see more people who are in the accounts world, who are in the precision world, who are very keen to make sure this data is right. So it's going to be easier for them to accept standards. Your broker at the front end is much more of your creative artiste who might perhaps have his own, her own way of spinning this and therefore maybe slightly harder to get the cultural change into something which is a little bit more predictive. But I think there isn't a fear factor here. They shouldn't be frightened of standards or frightened of consistency. They use it in their everyday life when they're wearing their smartwatch, when they're using their phone to go on the tube. This is all standard data that has made their lives personally much easier and much cheaper. I think as well, it's obviously going to depend and that's a very easy thing and throwaway statement to say. But I've recently done a, a market survey from a number of brokers and underwriters and as you would expect, there is a vast difference. There are some people that just get it. They are going data first. They are investing because they see the value and the benefit. But actually, even in the smaller scale organizations, they are much more nimble. They're much more agile. They're able to make those changes because they want to use their creativity and they want to be able to service their clients in the better way. They see just data as a byproduct. So there is a real mix in the market. And actually, one of the things I find quite interesting with programs that are in the market is they're almost too inclusive because what we try and do is we try and include everybody where they are. Now, that's very noble, but it's not the most efficient. And actually, you end up building solutions potentially around the slowest. Now, you don't need to go at the pace of the fastest, clearly, but we do need to move in some direction. I mean, we don't have Betamax videos anymore. We have streaming but we are providing solutions that are the entire range of that type of solution. We you, need to move forward to enable people to thrive and move more quickly for the benefit of the clients that we serve, not for ourselves. I mean, take, for example, HMRC. When we went over to digital VAT, they started with warnings that it was coming, it was coming, it was coming. There wasn't a choice. And if you didn't have the technology to do it, you paid somebody that did. That's the solution. It wasn't a question of we'll still allow you to send in all of these sort of handwritten documents and somebody will come around and investigate and look at it. You know, you have to find another solution. That is the route the government's gone. That is the route that we need to go. So your comment about the laggards and Helene about the speed of the slowest, I think is something that we need to go pragmatically. We need to be able to have a transition service, but this is a journey we're all going on. So there should be lots of carrots along the way, but eventually it does end with a stick. It's got to end with a stick. I mean, how can we move along and move with technology? We have got brokers who will need to make a cultural change, but we've discovered along the way there's a lot of dispelling of myths. There's a lot of people that say, we can't possibly do this. And then when you just investigate into some of the detail to say, okay, so you collect the inception date, you collect the expiry date, you already do this. This is what's in the CDR. This is the kind of core data. Don't worry about it. Yes, there may be some schedule of values data like IMOs of vessels and their weight and the gross tonnage, et cetera. They'll be moving further upstream, not done weeks later. But we'd have to ask, why would you be underwriting a fleet of vessels you didn't know what they were? So it's sort of a logical move. So I don't think it's quite so much everyone has to be afraid of. We need to talk about the Intelligent Market Reform Contract or the IMRC, as we're sure we're going to abbreviate it to. So 
This is another market-wide move. I remember the MRC coming in about 22 years ago. So this is a standardized form of the slip. So is it right for me as a layperson just to describe this as the digital version of the standard form of a slip? Or is that wrong? Let's just get some definitions out for lay listeners who are more like me. I do find it quite amusing that it's intelligent because unfortunately there isn't really anything intelligent in terms of a digital sense of the word about the IMRC. It is an updated set of guidances to try and standardise some components of the contract. So it starts to answer the question, Kirsten's favourite topic of what a section is and starts to describe it. But it also standardises some of the language. So the classic example is 1-3-2022. Is that the 1st of March or is that the 3rd of January? Actually, it now starts to make that much clearer in terms of a way that is easily readable for wherever you are in the world, but also computers. So it standardises some of that. But it also is including some additional data points within the contract that are required for the core data record. So it really serves those two purposes. But it is a set of guidance and the brokers are still able to interpret that guidance, provide their own contract formats and branding. So it is not anti-competitive in any way. People can still put their own stamp on it, literally and figuratively, to have their own IMRCs. And also people describe a computable contract and in the same breath they talk about the IMRC. Can you explain the difference between the two or are they the same thing? Not at all. So a computable contract is something that is self-executing. Now that's quite a grand term, but it basically means that the entire contract can be read by a computer. There are some very advanced technologies, and I would say white space was in that breath, where you are starting to digitise what we would commonly call data. So the word premium, a sell for the currency and then a sell for the amount. That I would start to say is a smart contract. It's only until you get to the clauses, to the words, and we've mentioned some of this already, and writing those in such a way that is both human and computer readable so that the computer can execute the contract. Now, there are some great examples. People are already doing this, actually. So there are some great examples where you could say, hmm, there's this thing called COVID coming. I wonder if I have a clause in my contract and across how many contracts. If those are not locked in Word documents and those are in a system and they are restructured in such a way that a computer can read, you would be able to, literally at the press of a button, be able to understand your exposure to a particular event and a particular coverage. That's the size of the prize of computable contracting. But until those clauses are rewritten in a modular way, we will not get there. But there is already work in the market to do that. And just to be really clear, the IMRC is not that. The IMRC is a set of guidelines. Correct. And I think it's really key to say that your IMRC is in a format that makes dare I say it, OCR more possible, the age-old technology. Okay, so text reading yeah, technology. Text reading, exactly. Yeah. So the idea is that it can find the place on the contract and try and extract it. This is the technology we knew 20 years ago. Now we're stepping that up to the next generation of that technology and being able to extract it from a laid out template that knows that you're going to now fill out various places. And, and there's loads of technology that can now spin this and turn it into more executable data to put into another system. But that's not the same as a computable contract, which can actually be fired without a human to then decide whether a claim is covered. Now, that's really quite a different generation about what's going on. So Whitespace have the ability to tag data. We can now identify the premium in the contract. We can identify 
the clause by its name, but not necessarily read the meaning to that clause within it. And even when you've got a PAS system, you can say the default clauses for this policy type are this list. That makes it a lot easier to take Helene's example of saying, do I have the COVID cover for business interruption? Because I can search my database for it. But it's still another step to say, what's the meaning of the clause that's within it? So that's the real difference well, between... We're still going to need lawyers, aren't we? We're still going to need lawyers, yes. And probably the last one on IMRC. So IMRC is not necessarily the sort of digital saviour. Is that right to put it that way? It's still a document at the end of the day. And we need to move beyond that. It is, again, that it's that inclusive first step towards something bigger. And, you know, some people could choose to leapfrog that, right? Because if they go data first and they produce the core data record, and from that same data set, they happen to produce a contract that is a rendered version of the contract, that's really the ideal end state. Mm. The IMRC is simply the very first inclusive step in that direction. And so therefore, organisations have to question whether they take many incremental steps or whether they go big bang towards mm. entirely data first. And again, that goes back to budgets, appetite, desire. Yeah. Uh, do you hand. change 400 templates into the new standard or do you say, I won't necessarily change my template that much, but I'm going to be able to submit the core data record as data for the purposes of the gateway? Because otherwise it's going to be two changes. One, an overhead to change all the contracts, and then a second one to actually move when transition services, for example, move out that will end up really, truly sending perhaps more data than is in the core data record currently today that will be closer, perhaps, to a full underwriting file. Good time to talk about transition services. Obviously, it seems like we're going to be in a hybrid model. Some will be able to do one step, some will do big bang, some will do it all at once, and some probably won't do anything until they absolutely have to. We've built in some planning for transition services. I've read something about up to about eight years. What's your view on that? Does that sound about right, or is it too lenient? If I say, well, in 100 years' time, we'll change, then everyone will know we don't have to do anything in our lifetimes, you know, because we won't even be alive at that point. So is eight, seven, eight years too far ahead? Or is it about right? Or is it enough of a stick to know that this cutoff is coming at some point? But if it's seven years ahead, people say, well, I don't have to do anything about it now. So let me first say, I think there is absolutely a place for transition services, because we are a subscription market. So we need to have a translation hub for those that are Right at the forefront, they've gone data first, but the organisations with which they trade have not. So there does need to be that translation services in order to move forward. But the service itself, to be honest, I've never, I've never actually heard that eight years. Yeah, I read it in an August publication, but I'm not sure it's necessarily been fully verified. There needs to be a period of time. There should be an end date, not least because of the construct of the transition service itself. But there'll be carrots and there'll be sticks. And how long do we as a market continue to tolerate Word documents? Mm. As long as the stick is actually the economic disadvantage of doing it the old way, when the new way is so much palpably better. I think it's demand-driven now. We've moved a little bit from a world of market reform to actually seeing demand for change. That's very much been our experience with a large number of firms starting to trade in a data-first fashion. And it's difficult for them always to find all their partners to trade with. But a couple of hundred firms now trading data first. And this year, we should see around 40,000 transactions purely data first. So that there's definitely demand. 
And it also drives the technology investment because, again, back to the point that the technologists may have to do certain aspects, for example, implement accord standards if they haven't already, for example, picking up extra fields to fill out to be able to capture the data, etc. earlier doors, maybe putting out low-code platforms and workbenches to be able to capture data closer to source. All these things as a technology requirement have really got to move away from that one client asking for one solution and that the vendors are saying, my user group wants this. But that only really comes about either with sharing the cost amongst the user group or being one step ahead, which means we need the demand to be there to validate the work we put in will actually be purchased after we've done it. Good time to ask about the ultimate customer, the buyer of insurance you know, through the London market, probably a large risk manager. Or the, I mean, obviously there are many different potential clients, but say, imagine this kind of core risk management professional buyer client. Have we spoken enough to them about what they really want? When we talk about demand, I presume they, they're demanding this at the same time, because a lot of them have got quite a lot of sophisticated risk management systems based around telematics and sort of things and all sorts of things. This will be an interesting moment where the market tests whether its standards are global standards or standards that work just between other insurers. So the interest from our customers in data may well be for that data in a different standard than we want to share it amongst ourselves as insurers. I think there's a good point as well in, and you said my favorite technology there, Mark, Internet of Things. In my travels around Internet of Things, the clients who are using them and deploying them, they are outpacing and out-innovating us as an industry. And that is a serious statement. And they are actually looking for other forms of risk financing because we cannot deliver products and services sufficiently quickly to meet their risk needs. So actually, there is an impetus on us to start thinking about how do we accept that type of data? And even five years ago, when we were looking at InsureWave as a solution, Maersk connected their five internal systems straight into InsureWave. They saw the benefit of sharing that data for a better risk profile, and they connected their systems straight in. So there is definite benefit for doing that. And again, we go back to that rekeying point. Sending data means no rekeying. You're getting that up to the minute data. That does bring into the question of trust and the age old, will we put the premium up because we've got more data? But that's a separate conversation. I think even with those that are not in the Internet of Things world, they're not in the high volumes of data that they need to trade, we are still with brokers who would like to add to their customer service. They have validating why they're here. After all, there are plenty of examples of going direct to insurers. So why is the broker here? It's all about the customer service. It's all about what they can add the value to. For example, if you've got, say, a super yacht or any kind of vessel that is sailing around the planet, you know, if you were able to provide dare I say, the document or the rendered document for their insurance policy whilst they're on the high seas. These kinds of things are reality. They're not necessarily it's high volumes. Useful. It's very useful. So why can we not provide those documents as soon as they're produced, not by the post, I'm not suggesting they all go by post now, but putting them out to a secure portal that allows that person to grasp. We have it in Aviva or whatever your health insurance is or your motor insurers. You have a portal which you can download your documents. We need that to be normal, not exceptional in this market. So there are lots of things that would simply make life much easier for mm. the customer, even if they're not a very sophisticated customer. Yeah. And they're used to it in their personal lives. Go back 30, 40 years. When you were at home, you did not have the power of your technology on your desktop or in your handheld device. You went to work to enjoy 
the complexity and the power of your computer systems. Now we hold more power in our hand than went to the Apollo 13. I mean, it's ridiculous. So in that sense, we're much more used to apps, fingerprint analysis, you know, all these things in our normal lives. And it's overtaken, especially the specialty market, it's overtaken that market on what the client should ultimately just expect to be normal. I'm going to look for other problems. My job is partly to look for hurdles, and I would need to then show how we're all going to jump over them. The other classic problem, other than the laggard problem, is the broker underwriter problem. Every time there's a change, it seems to be a new opportunity for brokers and underwriters to argue over the division of labor and provision of labor and how that labor is paid for. Are we going to get over this? Are brokers and underwriters in the London market equally incentivized to make this happen? I've got a bit of an answer to that, that one of the experiences that we've seen with a piece of software that's used by both broker and underwriter at around the same time, and where they share the work that each other has done, is that that has been an enabling thing for each to receive and work with changes or data that's added by the other. And the opportunity, I think, for there to be a piece of common software that is used by more than one party in a transaction, if you like, I think that will drive further change. So a bit like sort of a Google Docs type thing with different folks are in the document editing at the same time and looking at things. A little bit like that. And if you like the ability to use an underwriter's edit, a new premium, for example, yeah. the ability simply to read that back out and use it in the broking office, yeah. it's incredibly powerful. You don't have to communicate. You simply just see that this is what has been amended and actually do we accept that. If we do accept that, we can bind that right now. That's right. And, and just yep. with a few examples where people see that happening, it brings the, could you do this as well question. So could, could you have the client could, could in the room at the same time? Yeah. Could we add a client? Most technologists know that it's very easy to send data. So you can have your broker power system, purely data, sending to Whitespace, for example. So Novus can connect using Whitespace APIs, sends data across. The trick always is actually the consumption of that data back out again. The use and the signing off by the Data Council of Accord Standards, GRLC, which is the, I'm not going to, it's the it's global, global large in, reinsurance in commercial in an order that spells GRLC. So from that perspective, you've got data which we now can consume back again. Now, the source system is often in many ways the gatekeeper. It's the one that has had the drop-down list. It has only allowed certain things. So, for example, if you were to put in a country and you decided it was going to be FR for France, and then the underwriter edited that without their PAS system having the same controls and put WW for worldwide, we have a problem. So by having the definitions that WW is not an ISO code and it's not a uniformly understood code, means that if we all spoke the same language, back to our, some of our original points, means we can now start to consume the data back into perhaps the more restrictive systems that are dictating the laws, dictating the rules, which places something like Whitespace in an extremely strong position to be able to accept data in easily and then to turn it into tag data that can allow somebody to interpret it back out again. Obviously, the world's always changing. In the couple of years I've been doing this podcast, there are things that emerge and you start talking about them that you weren't talking about much before. ESG, for example, and it seems to be obvious to me now, having spoken to lots of people about it lots of times, that you know, ESG is going to be another data point in your core data record or something because it's going to permeate everything. Everyone's going to want to have some sort of ESG scoring or because, of course, ESG, it's my relationship with my clients, with my relationship with the people I trade with and also the relationship that I have with the people who invest in me and also 
it takes into account my own activities, and my own operations. And we don't know what the next ESG is going to be. And we'll know that the world is progressing, that there will be more requirements and, and new things will need to be measured. So how confident is everyone that we're going to build a system that we can easily add new bits to it without it all falling over? And we've got some little engine where we've bolted too many bits together, like some Heath Robinson thing that it will eventually fall over. Can you design the architecture of this machine so that we can quite easily put in the new requirements of the new world as it develops without having to start all over again? The organizations that have moved to a sort of fully data-first model will find it more straightforward to work with more data. If the change that you talk about, a new piece of data, whatever that is, requires change to multiple systems and different documents being authored by different people, then that could be a much more protracted and painful change. And I think as firms adopt a data-first approach and become more comfortable working with data, this type of change will actually cost less. It will be an advantage. There will be fewer things that need to be changed, and those things will cost less to change. In the technology world, they talk about future-proofing. Are they being totally honest when they say that you can future-proof things because obviously they don't know what the future holds? I think you can be pragmatic. I think there are certain things you can look ahead and instead of saying this one field has one value, I'm going to allow that field to have multiple values. I may only have one at the moment, but I can see potentially there could be multiple values at the end. That's at the granular level. But if you think in the way that you make these structures in that fashion, you'll probably find you have done a very good job at future-proofing within a career's lifetime, not necessarily within a, a sort of global lifetime. I think it also kind of goes to the question of generalist systems versus specialist systems, because as people have upgraded their policy admin systems and the like, not every piece of data goes into that one system. It's more of a component-based architecture. So they don't have to throw the entire baby out with the bathwater. They can build smaller components to attach to the main or take components out if they're no longer useful. I think it's time to start to summarise. First, I'd like to ask you all how optimistic you all are that we're going to get where we need to go and, and by get where we need to go to get to a point where we do have a fully digital market, where there's maybe this tiny periphery of document traded stuff that's a tiny minority of some very, very specific exceptions to the rule. But how optimistic you are in general that this time we're going to get where we need to go? I think it's a perfect storm at the moment that we have the technology is at a cost that is manageable and it is accessible by, let's say, the smaller brokers, the smaller specialist boutique companies. You've also got the influence of the disruptors and the insure techs. So they're creating an environment where those smaller brokers are actually looking at something which is budgetly achievable to get onto the ladder. It's not going to be the really big guys leading the way. I mean, if, for example, you had, I've used this example before, Gillette, they had a razor mountain. They decided that they needed to get rid of razors. They didn't go and ask everybody en masse, how do you think you would use it, etc. They basically put them into nice pieces, nice boxes, put them at eye height, and they flew off the shelves. We've got to make it much more achievable, very sort of like a no-brainer, so to speak. If that has actually now come, APIs are more achievable. We've got open source technology. We've got cleaner third-party databases to use for augmenting data. So going off with an IMO number and coming back with all that data about the vessel, not having to go and ask them to send it via a spreadsheet, all that kind of thing. This has all started to come to bear to put it in the grasp of the smaller and the SME companies. And the larger companies perhaps have got more of a tanker to turn. So we will see, I believe, certainly we will see more activity at the lower end 
there will be activity at the top end, but it may be that their activity is spread across multiple different elements. We can make a digital leap, whereas, say, 20 years ago, bigger brokers would have loved it because they could see it as a, yes. a way of creating a barrier to entry to eliminate some of these annoying small brokers. In fact, these days, the small brokers can jump ahead. Definitely. I think we also need to think about it from a people perspective, not just a technology perspective and the skill sets that we need in the market. But as we've gone around the market and we've been talking about the core data record and the IMRC, there's definitely a vibe of this time it might actually work because of the standards, because of the technology. But there's that people realisation that they're not going to be able to stand still and the way that they could thrive if they indeed go data first. Even amongst some of the cynics. And that's saying something. I think that the real change has been right up at the level of leadership in the market and in all of the firms in the market, that there's a group of people running these businesses that would have been a few years back less interested in the digital world. Yeah. Suddenly, there's huge interest. That, for me, is the thing that drives the optimism. What happens after we've achieved this, when you sort of allow yourself to go off on the flight of fancy, what might the market look like in 10 or 15, 20 years time when it is fully digital? How much could it change then when it's really much less frictional? I will roll back X number of years and ask that question before the invention of the internet. Somebody would have said, once we've got this ability to connect up and send messages and look at pages on a sort of central network, where would we go next? Well, it ends up being the sky's the limit. Once you've put the foundations in and the piping that actually allows for data to move from A to B, that becomes second nature. It becomes obvious. It's not the barrier. It's not the be all and end all. It now comes down to the customer service, the product range, looking at new things that need insuring. A few years back, cyber was a new thing. So we've got a, a whole raft of things where the brokers and the carriers can focus on what they're good at, which is broking and underwriting. And the technology becomes just something that is commonplace. I think it goes back to that previous comment that clients are out innovating and outpacing us. This is such a cliche to say this, but if we can take some of that mundane, the administrative, and allow them to be more innovative, drive better products. And for me, my passion is about driving better service. How can we ameliorate risk management in a different way that isn't just a pay because something has happened? How can we stop this stuff happening in the first place? To that point, the better service takes this into a sort of, how do I grow my business area? And I think that the demand for the technology is absolutely driven by that. It's no longer just a pure operational matter. It's become a business growth matter. And that's actually really one of the big benefits if we really stretch out to computable contracts. Because you can automate contracts, it enables you to grow. I wouldn't say exponentially, but it enables you to grow much more quickly because you have this automated way that you can build contracts much more quickly and better service to clients. So a bright future for the London market if we can get all this done right. I just want to thank all of you. I'm a layperson technologically. I do understand quite a lot about insurance and some of the interactions between insurance and technology, but you've done a really good job of explaining to the average listener what's coming down the track and what problems and solutions are going to be available. So I thank all of you for taking your time speaking to the Voice of Insurance. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. 
It's also an intimate medium, where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience, because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>